All you need is love. Welcome in to another episode of Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. As I just teased, today's episode will be about love, specifically love in the context of psychotherapy, including psychedelic psychotherapy, of course, as is the focus of our program. You know, at the risk of falling into cliches, talking about love, psychedelics, all you need is love, we decided to have a conversation today with someone who does not self-identify as a hippie. Our guest today is Dr. Adele LaFrance. She's a clinical psychologist, research scientist, author, and co-developer of emotion-focused treatment modalities, including emotion-focused family therapy. Adele is also a leader in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine, with a focus on ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. Currently, she's the clinical investigator and strategy lead for the MAP-sponsored MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study for eating disorders and a collaborator clinical support on the Imperial College Study for Psilocybin and Anorexia Nervosa. As always, if you enjoy listening to the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps us out. It helps more people find the program, which we'd really enjoy getting the word out and deepening this conversation. You can share this on social media so that other people can hear it if you enjoy. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening and enjoy the interview. with Dr. Adele LaFrance. Um, this is an interview I'm really excited about. It's one of the cool things about having a podcast is I was just, I found an article I loved online and I just absolutely loved it. And so I reached out to the author, Dr. Adele LaFrance, and she agreed very graciously to be on the show. So hello, Adele. Hello. Nice to, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I wonder to get started, if you would like to just introduce yourself just a little bit, you know, how you got involved in the field of psychotherapy, maybe, and then how you got involved with uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. I mean, that is kind of a long story, but I'll try to give you like a super short version. Sure. <laughs> um, I went to grad school to uh, in a school in child clinical psychology. And so uh, most of my training was related to school psychology or clinical psychology with children, primarily assessments, actually. And so I really felt like I would probably have a career um, conducting learning assessments or assessments for people who had learning struggles, you know, in the school system. And then I completed my fourth year internship <clears throat> at a hospital in Ontario, Canada. And the clinical director suggested that well, it wasn't a suggestion, it was mandatory, but we all had to do a rotation in an area that we knew nothing about. And my strengths were in assessment. And so they put me in a rotation for eating disorders. And I remember feeling like, oh gosh, I do not want to do this. This does not sound like fun. I had all kinds of, you know, internalized stigma related to 
eating disorders, treatment of eating disorders. I ended up starting the rotation, loved it, you know, really just was so not just interested in um, eating disorders, but just really like wanting to help, you know, it, it seemed so complex. And um, at that time, there was a, there was kind of a, a big change happening in the field of treatment of eating disorders, <clears throat> moving towards more family-based treatments. And so I was, I was learning about them at the same time as everybody else in the field. Anyways, I never looked back, you know, I ended up getting my first job in the field of eating disorders and also started to contribute to the development of treatment models to see if we could find better ways to treat eating disorders. Now, of course, my practice was not just limited to eating disorders, um, but it was definitely kind of more of a focus. And so I did develop a, a new treatment model called emotion-focused family therapy, which was getting gaining traction and, and seemingly useful for a number of families, you know, who weren't necessarily responsive to conventional treatment methods who needed something more. And then um, while I was working for an eating disorder program, you know, as my first job, we had recently had a couple of deaths uh, related to eating disorders. One was suicide and one was um, related to organ failure, you know, secondary to malnutrition. And I just had this like relentless feeling of helplessness, honestly, in terms of what was available, what was useful, you know, what was working for whom, how many people were left behind. And at that time, I saw a documentary featuring uh, Gabor Mate, and he was showing his work with people who had serious addiction, who also struggled with homelessness. And when I saw that, it was about ayahuasca. I'd never heard that word before. I certainly didn't know anyone who'd ever done it. I was extremely naive when it came to that whole world, including psychedelics in general. But when I saw the documentary, you know, I just really thought about the people I was serving. I was also going through a tough time in my own life. You know, I was going through uh, fertility treatments, which were extremely difficult, both physically and psychologically. And I think it was the combination of both experiences that made it so that I reached out and asked him if he could share more with me, you know, about what he was doing. Long story short, very long story short, I ended up at a retreat um, abroad, had my first experiences with ayahuasca. Not only did it really have a profound impact on my life, but I also witnessed others who had eating disorders, disordered eating, other serious mental health issues, experiencing um, shifts in their way of seeing themselves, the world, in their mood, like nothing I'd ever seen before. And so um, I came home and I started to do research. At that time, I was an academic in a, in a, at a university, and um, I haven't looked back. Wow, great. What a, um, thank you for sharing that. So thank you for that, um, for that introduction. And I, and I wanted to ask more specifically, I think I'm really curious about the eating disorder piece, and, and maybe we can get to that later in the interview. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to cue up sort of this article about mm-hmm. love and psychotherapy. And I wanted mm-hmm. to just start by asking, how would you define, when you talk about it, how would you define love in a psychotherapeutic context? Well, um, you know, Carl Rogers really paved the way for us when he talked about unconditional positive regard. And so the definition is, in my opinion, very, very consistent. But, you know, you have to understand that at that time, 
we couldn't use the word love. That would have been really scary for the receivers <laughs> of that information. So it's like, it's really not, not that different from this concept of unconditional positive regard, like really being, uh, really caring for the other person, wanting well for them, um, seeing the best in them, accepting them exactly how they are. <clears throat> it's it's obviously not romantic love, you know, so it's important to talk about what it is, but also what it isn't. But it's this this sense of brotherhood, sisterhood, universality of, of experience, seeing the other in a positive light, doing their best and perfect exactly as they are. So why do you think that love kind of became a, a I don't know, a bad word in, in, in a psychotherapeutic context? Well, I think there's kind of, there's several reasons, you know, um, I could talk about a couple of them. One is that um, psychothera- the psychotherapy history is fraught with abuse. Honestly, you know, there's, there's, there are countless stories of psychotherapists, psychiatrists engaging in sexual relationships with their patients, sometimes in the name of healing, sometimes in the name of love. And uh, more broadly, many people have been hurt in the name of love. Love is a, is when we when we meet somebody in love, it's an extremely vulnerable place, and our culture has been conditioned to protect itself from vulnerability, to hide itself from vulnerability. You know, and so I think that there's a combination of factors why culturally, but also within the specific framework of psychotherapy, it would be considered taboo. The other reason is that you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, behavioral therapies were all the rage, you know, very popular and cognitive therapies and, and, um, even psychoanalytic psycho, uh, psychoanalytic therapies were very popular. And all of those therapies were really kind of guiding the therapist to be more of a blank slate, you know, to be more neutral. And that made, that makes a lot of sense because then the person can project, onto the blank slate and you can have real clarity about, you know, what's going on for whom and how to help. But we found that those therapies are not always, they don't always work for everybody, you know, and uh, some people need something different. And then here came, you know, the humanistic psychology movement where there was much more focus on, on uh, a natural, honest relationship you know, between the psychotherapist and the client and the coining of that term unconditional positive regards was actually quite risky at that time for him to be using that term when you consider, uh, which other therapies, you know, were, um, were considered respected or evidence-based or, so I think there's, there's just so many reasons. Like, I mean, we're all afraid of love because in love is where we get hurt the most, you know, and many of us who seek therapy are seeking therapy because we're struggling with either having not felt enough love or misguided love, or we're, we have blocks to feeling love for others or from, uh, from others. So it's like, it's, it's tricky. I, I did a, I actually did a talk recently with Gabor, you know, total talk about 360 about love in psychedelic psychotherapy and psychotherapy in general. And 
and he was, he, he said something that I really liked, you know, and he said, well, it's like, in my opinion, psychedelic experience reflect one of two experiences, experiences of love and connection or experiences of what stops us from feeling love and connected. And so in the, in their essence, when we use psychedelics for healing purposes, you know, we can boil them down to either one of those two experiences. Yeah, I love that. I remember when I was in graduate school, I had a, a professor who said, uh, I love my patients. And I remember when I heard that, I was I was shocked as a you know young graduate student in a very mainstream program that felt so controversial. Um, I, I love what you said sort of about you, you sort of touching on our cultural relationship with this word concept or, of love. And, mm-hmm. you know, it always strikes me the, the argument that we only have this one word of, for love and that, you know, mm-hmm. in our culture, we, we, we tend to focus on this idealistic, romantic form of love. And really, there's all different ways of experiencing it. Now, it, it felt like one thing I took away from your article was, you it, it, you know, correct me if if I've got this wrong, but it felt like you were suggesting, let's have an honest conversation about love. Let's bring it back into the therapy room mm-hmm. because that's what's going on in the suffering of our clients. Mm-hmm. That's right. And to do it very delicately because um, pe- people struggle to talk about it. You know, People struggle to reckon with the role that it plays in our lives. And so I'm not suggesting that people just start saying to their clients, I love you, you know, I think that would be shocking for some. It would actually be scary for many. Like what? My therapist loves me. That's actually terrifying. You know, what are you even talking about? It's not supposed to be like that. Now, some people will will know exactly what it means and it will be a beautiful healing agent. So, but, but what you said is exactly what I want to convey is like, let's make it a conversation in the therapy room as well as more broadly in the fields. You know, this idea about the appropriateness, not just the appropriateness of love, but the power of love as a healing technology, actually. Mm, Yeah. So it seems like there's this tension, right? On the one hand, in psychotherapy, you work so hard to establish safety. But love isn't necessarily safe for a lot of people. A lot of people we're working with, it doesn't feel like a safe, safe territory. So, mm-hmm. um, so there's all these walls and blocks to it. And yet, like you said, love is a powerful agent of healing. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's sort of like that tension between safety and helping someone feel safe and helping someone mm-hmm. learn to access this sort of love. Um, mm-hmm. And and the way that um, psychedelics fit into that, as described by Gabo. Gabor Mate, like you just said, it really kind of points to both either having the direct experience of that love or removing the barriers or, or seeing the impediments to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thankfully, um, all of the psychotherapies, cognitive, behavioral, you know, emotion focused, psychodynamic, you know, and all the new ones that are coming up, all of them have a framework to um, lean into states um, that are difficult, you know, like we have exposures, for example, are working through the box to engaging in, in territories that are difficult or scary. And so that tension, I think, is what the field of psychotherapy does best is re- try finding ways to resolve that tension. So I think we're well poised to do it, you know, it's just, we just need to have kind of more of a focus in doing it. And every time I talk about this topic, 
you know, and I just did a, a presentation last week, one of the clinicians who was advanced in their career said, wow, thank you. Thank you for giving me permission to love my, my patients. And she was a medical, a medical doctor. And like, I, I do love my patients, but I always felt like there was something wrong with it, you know, and it, it still needs to be, um, it still needs to be a process where the therapist as self is, is very aware, you know, of what's going on for them, because it is possible um, to kind of cross the line or cross a line, you know, and become, become too invested, you know, in, in the client's well-being. And then that wouldn't actually be a description of this concept of love that we're talking about, you know? So it is really important for the therapist to kind of be mindful, to be aware, to be engaging their own personal work, to stay on top of these things. But, but this concept of, of love and psychotherapy, I think is just, you know, so worthwhile. In fact, I was thinking about, I'm going to be presenting a conference soon. And I was thinking about this topic and how I could present on it. You know, I was thinking, okay, well, first, if we just, if the three of us just look at each other right now and we just feel, you know, feel, send love to each other and, or even say the words like, Nate, you know what? I don't know you well, but I can feel you and I love you. You know, Brian, the same, you know, I really, I really love you. Like, feel how weird that is. <laughs> You know, I feel weird saying it, you know, I imagine you feel weird receiving it. And yet on some level, it's also very true. It's very true. There's that, that sense of shared humanity that's here. Um, and so then I'm like, okay, well, that's going to be true for clinicians in the, in the therapy room too. And so rather as a first step, maybe I'll, I'll invite you to join me if you feel like it, I'll invite you to take a deep breath and I'll do that too. And rather than like sending love to one another or speaking love to one another, try just being love. And naturally, love emanates from us. And so then if we use that as a stance, being love, and we bring that into the psychotherapy space and we go about our business you know, doing our work, but from this place of being love, you know, that's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful way of kind of beginning this integration in, in, uh, in a, in a clear manner. Yeah. I love that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting thing to think about. And, you know, oftentimes love becomes, you know, or what we think of as love or what is often thought of as love gets so wrapped up in like a, a possessiveness or, um, you know, like wanting to hold on to it or um, grasping, um, mm. which, you know, all of those things are, are, are things that you, you, know, you can't have, you know, in the therapy room. But when you're being loved to me, that, that, that creates this sense of like, you're just sort of trying to cultivate an environment in which there is love is being shared back and forth. Not so much like I love you, even though those might be the words you say, but with that even kind of carries with it that sort of like hook of like me, I, ego, yes. loves you as a person. But like if we take the I and the you out of it and we just have a free free exchange of love back and forth, to me that seems like like the ideal we're trying to describe here. Does, mm -hmm. that, does that make sense? It totally makes sense, you know, and, and we can go further if we want, but, but um, it's a great – 
play, place to start. And I mean, even saying that doesn't really capture the power of it because when you think about what helps babies thrive, it's being in that energy. There's something about being able to pick up on that energy that leads to thriving, you know, physiologically, emotionally, um, even spiritually. When we can kind of have that experience in the presence of another. And then eventually we internalize that ourselves. I love that that concept of being love. And you talk Mm -hmm. about in your article, four different kinds of love associated with the psychedelic experience. And I think, you know, about clients who have certain histories, maybe a trauma history or neglect Mm -hmm. history where, you know, that, that, that concept might seem so foreign because they're, they haven't even experienced the interpersonal love. Right. And how, you know, psychedelics have this really profound ability to somehow provide experiences of love, self-love or love for others or receiving love. You know, you Mm -hmm. kind of talk about the different types. Um, I wonder if you could say more about why do you think that is or how do you understand that ability of psychedelics to occasion seemingly reliably these experiences? Mm -hmm. Well, my belief is that um, we are all born with the innate capacity to love and feel loved. And um, it's an essential quality, you know, and when either what happens to us or what doesn't happen to us affects our capacity to tune into or develop these capacities, um, the psychedelics allow us to either reclaim parts of ourselves that have been alienated or uh, reconnect with with parts of ourselves that have been alienated, strengthen connections, or even foster you know new connections and new experiences that had we received what we would have needed, they would have developed naturally. So it's really like um, miracle grow for the brain in some ways. <laughs> uh, like it's quite fascinating, but also this idea of like putting pieces back into connection that maybe were disconnected as a result of challenging life experiences or trauma. But if we kind of follow it even further, it gets a little, it gets mystical, (laughs) you know? And, you know, one of my friends, uh, Joe Tafur, he does a lot of, he does a lot of speaking about uh, the mind, the body, and the spirit in the context of psychedelic medicine. He's an ayahuasca, but he's also a trained medical doctor. And he, I love what he says. He's like, um, He's like, yes, love is so important. It's at the center of it all. It's it's connected to spirituality. And he's like, and you follow it. If you follow it to, if you follow it all the way, if you follow this path of breadcrumbs all the way, it's going to get metaphysical. It's going to get uncomfortable. And gosh, I thought about that conversation for weeks in terms of like really reckoning with what that meant, you know? Um, because the other thing that psychedelics occasion are these mystical experiences. And when people describe these mystical experiences, they talk about a feeling of oneness, a feeling of peace, um, a feeling of love, an experience of love, of universal love. 
And um, so that is really interesting because not only is the field of psychotherapy anxious about the L word, there's also some some pretty widespread anxiety around the integration of spirituality within within psychotherapy. And I remember when I was being trained, um, you know, I was told very explicitly, do not bring concepts of spirituality into the treatment room unless it is desired by the client. I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to respect where people are at, you know, with respect to religiosity, spirituality, especially that many have been hurt in the name of religion, you know, and there's there's a lot of religious trauma. Um, certainly were. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's just, it's a complex thing. But now that the psychedelic renaissance is showing that people who have these really profound spiritual and mystical experiences, which most often involve an experience of universal love, um, are experiencing improved outcomes in comparison with those who do not. And so when we think about conventional psychotherapy, if we know that there's this really powerful change agent that seems to predict positive outcomes, it's almost like, do we not have a responsibility to then, you know, bring a focus to it in the context of psychotherapy? So I was thinking about this and I thought, okay, I'm an emotion focused therapist. You know, that's the core of my training and the core of my, you know, treatment development and so if a, if, a, if a client said to me, I don't value emotions and it's really not something that I am, I feel good about. It's really not something I feel like I want to discuss. And so um, let's just let, if you could, please respect me, be a client centered therapist and let's just not talk about emotions, you know, that wouldn't fly. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. You know, I would be like looking at, okay, what's the resistance? Um, where, where have you been hurt so that we can bring healing to those wounds so that eventually we can reconnect you to your emotional world. We can reconnect you to the emotional world of others, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now I feel like equally um, passionate about helping people reconnect to spirituality because consistently the psychedelic renaissance has been showing us through research that this is a very important variable. And so now it's like, okay, you have a resistance to talking about spirituality. You have a resistance to engaging with spirituality. I'm going to treat it the same way as you would emotion. What happened? How can I help you? You know, how can I help you reconnect to this system of healing? You know, that is, that is present in us all. And when I say spirituality, I mean, it doesn't have to be God. It can be nature, you know, it can be time. It can be whatever fits for that person. But um, like emotions, like love, I really am going to do everything I can to help reconnect this person to one of their essential qualities. Um, and that is spirituality. But, you know, love and spirituality I see as related and there is a lot of overlap, but I also believe that there are distinctions that are important to make. So the people in psychedelic experiences will have really powerful spiritual or mystical experiences that of course will be wrapped up in love. But there are some people who do not have those experiences and yet have profound experiences related to love, either self-love or love of others or remembering or experiencing love from others, 
or from the natural world, you know? And so I think it's important to talk about both, um, that it's not just connected to spirituality, at least not in the um, experience of many. It's, it's almost like the field of psychotherapy on a collective level is having a psychedelic experience in that, you know, the, what, what this Renaissance is doing is really um, challenging the current paradigm. And I hear you kind of challenging mm-hmm. some of the parts of the, the current paradigm, which, which I received too in my training around how to talk to clients about spirituality. You know, you don't mm-hmm. bring it up usually if clients don't bring it up or, mm-hmm. uh, and I love the metaphor of, you know, if a client said, I don't, I'm not really into the whole emotions thing, you wouldn't just <laughs> let that go. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, a vital part of our humanness. That's right. Yeah. Or thoughts, you know, like just, we're just going to ignore thoughts. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I love that we're having this, this conversation and which, you know, in a way it's so almost stereotypical or cliche of what you would think from like a 1960s flower power, love is everything. Love is the Mm. answer. You know, Mm -hmm. this whole thing. Um, but it's a cliche for a reason. And yes. I, I love that we are, instead of kind of, you know, instead of um, allowing it to be dismissed, taking it very seriously. And yeah. I think that that's really important because I think it sort of has been dismissed, but what psychedelics have brought into our culture, mm-hmm. you know, is this in a, in this really huge way that, you know, was I think kind of dismissed or poo-pooed coming out of the, the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. but there's still that energy to it that I think is vital and important to, for healing both individually, but also, you know, socially and beyond. Like this is a, a yeah. core healing aspect of the human experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, in defense of those who have poo-pooed, psychedelic use in the context of health and mental health was used really irresponsibly, you know, decades ago. There were a lot of really serious ethical issues, many boundary violations, you know, it, it wasn't always being done as it was intended. And so, you know, some people like to talk about like, oh, the government just, you know, squashed it because of wanting to control, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not doubting that there were influences of that nature. And also, you know, some of the leaders at that time did us a disservice by not engaging with these substances in a way that was professional, ethical, responsible. Um, So I feel like that's really important to talk about, you know, like some people have anxieties about psychedelics and for good reason, because they remember Timothy Leary and he did a lot of really good things for the field, but he also, he also made it a lot harder for us to kind of re-energize, you know, this movement, um, politics aside. The other piece I would say is that when you think about like the flower child kind of mentality of, of love you know, I'm definitely not, I'm not what one would consider a hippie, you know, and I actually really don't super connect with that, um, with that prototype of like, oh, you know, when you you think about it, you think about someone who's like flaky, Uh love, love is everything, you know, that kind of thing. And, and one of the things, one of the things that I've experienced is that sometimes people use these this universality of experience, you know, including with love as a way to bypass Uh some of the more challenging aspects of the human experience. You know, it's all about love. It's not all about love. If you're a human, 
it's about sadness. It's about pain. It's about mm-hmm. anger. You know, it's about suffering as, as well as love, you know, and beauty. And so my experience of the stereotypical kind of hippie flower child, you know, love warrior is that is that there's some people who I think were kind of representing it in a way that was difficult for others to connect with because in some ways there was bypass going on. Absolutely. I, th- I think that that's right. I think that it was sort of an injection at a time that needed an injection of that. But I think what we're yeah. talking about today um, is integration, is integrating mm-hmm. You know, that's sort right. of like like it's both and you know that's true and like you're mm-hmm. talking about but but I think there was um and I think it was I mean you see tragically a lot of fallout from you know that generation you know who mm-hmm. maybe was more hooked on uh, that love or that positive vision but couldn't make space for um you know couldn't make space for a fuller human picture including suffering including you know, all, all the diff- difficult aspects. So we're talking today about integrating these things That's together. Right. I think. Yeah. I mean, but it was great. It's gl- I'm glad it happened. You know, it was like, it's like a plant, you know, when a plant starts to grow, the buds are immature, not fully formed, but the essence of life is there. And so I think that's, you know, what was happening is that, okay, like we learned and um, we're refining, we're becoming more mature as a culture and we're in a much better place now than ever to kind of tackle this. I mean, it's certainly not perfect when you look at the corporatization of psychedelics and, you know, that whole arm that needs some cleanup in aisle five. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're learning, we're learning, we're learning, we're learning. And it's, and it's really, really positive and it's very promising. I'm curious about your work with clients and to what degree is what we're talking about, like how does that translate into, you know, let's say case conceptualization or even an intake? Like, do you directly ask questions about love? Are you thinking about that, you know, from when you start to see a client? Is it more just your internal kind of thinking about these ideas and how they might apply or... You know, how do they, and, and I don't, and our audience probably might be less, in general, less familiar with emotion-focused therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming that that probably has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have to admit that these days I don't do a lot of client work, you know? So for the most part, I'm focused on uh, protocol development for research, treatment development, supervision, and training. And so I actually don't have an office of clients anymore. Um, occasionally I facilitate, uh, retreats, trauma-based retreats, um, most often, but yeah, I mean, we're, it's, we're wanting to think about love all the way through. So it could start at intake. What's your relationship with love? Um, how, what's your facility in expressing love? What's your facility in receiving love? Um, we're working on a measure right now so that we can, ask people, you know, about these different experiences of love and psychedelic psychotherapy, which I hope then to adapt for the, for the field of psychotherapy, um, or, you know, more generally. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of work is looking at where, where we are, where we are, um, capable and connected in our capacity to love and where we are thwarted, you know, so bringing attention to primary attachment relationships where, um, either 
we did not feel the experience of love or we were struggling to show love, you know, and to kind of connect with those wounded parts of the self in order to um, bring back online, you know, those capacities, those essential qualities. But even just having a conversation about it, you know, is enough to get things started. But I would encourage people of using different modalities to think about, okay, what's the role of love in this modality? How can I integrate this concept of love in this modality? And if I don't feel comfortable or it doesn't feel relevant or it's not practically going to be useful or if not practically like possible, you know, at this time, then how can I embody Mm. love in the treatment room doing exactly what I'm doing? And, you know, that's where I would even suggest that, that presence, that being love. And I'm really grateful to have had myself a psychedelic experience of being love where, you know, it's really just, you don't even feel like you're a human. You just feel like this, this radiating energy of love. Um, Because I only have had that experience once, one other time when I did a Vipassana retreat, you know, over the course of 10 days, I had two experiences like that of like, oh my gosh, this really feeling connected to everything and feeling deeply peaceful and content, you know? And so like, okay, now I can remember what that feels like. Mm-hmm. I can go back to that state. Um, even just right now, you know, in, in conversation with you, just connecting with being love. Cause I, I, I see when I get out of that state, like earlier when I was talking about um, the history, I was, when I, when I'm thinking back, I'm like, Oh, I was feeling a bit cynical. You know, I was feeling a little irritated and then, and so it's like, okay, now I'm aware of it. And now I want to kind of hold that awareness and reconnect to the topic, reconnect to you, uh, reconnect to kind of these ideas in a way that's more grounded from that stance, from that place of, of being love. So one of the things that's jumping out at me, you know, as we're talking is, is, you know, you even, you know, in the conversation you've done a few times where you're sort of reorienting, um, much as I think we would do in, in psychotherapy, a conversation towards the more process of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love to think of, of love that way, um, you know, as as more of a process or maybe as a verb rather than a noun or a state or something like that. It's like a, it's something that you are, it's a, it's a, it's a process that's unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wonder what, if we were to try to break that down even a little more, like what are aspects of that process that are important to help um, allow oneself to, you know, enter into that, enter into that process. So it's so like, what are the the barriers? What are, what are the processes? What are the, you know, like being present for instance, or like what are, what are ways that we can engage in that process of loving? Mm-hmm. It's like, we want to, you're thinking about as a verb versus a state of being. Yeah, like it's a it's yeah. something that we're doing. I mean, it, in addition to the way we're feeling, it's also something that we're doing, an action that we're taking. Well, if you use it as a state of being, then it's and it's then it's a propeller. You know, it's like an underground propeller that kind of influences the words you use. You know, the actions that you take, and so I think it's quite organic. It's not effortful if you kind of start with the state of being. However, we can be more effortful about it, more deliberate, more conscious about it. And so I think that the processes that 
maybe inter- most interruptive are fear and shame. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's scary to act out love in words and action in some situations, especially when there's a history of hurt, either with that person or within ourselves. And then that's our blueprint. And then I also feel like um, some people, you know, don't necessarily feel worthy of love or they're afraid of being seen as um, vulnerable, you know, vulnerable, but in a negative way, weak, broken, pitiful, you know. Um, And so then there's this fear of hurt, but there's also this fear of shame, fear of rejection. And I think those two processes can be kind of the most powerfully interruptive. So, so in a way, um, cause, cause I agree and it, it, you know, and I, I like the way you're saying that, of course, like, um, it's almost like love propels itself. Like when you kind of get into that state, love propels itself, but the effort to me seems in identifying and working with those impediments, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort right. of like you did this, just that noticing that you did earlier. We said, I noticed I was a little bit cynical. Like that was an effortful thing. You had to notice that, observe that so that you could kind of return to that, <clears throat> that loving place, which, you know, like maybe that's not an effortful place. Like that propels itself, but getting to that place sometimes. That's right. The reorientation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it's like mindfulness, you know, and I love how people talk about mindfulness as a practice. I really didn't buy that for a long time, you know, meditation and mindfulness as a practice. I really felt like, you know, like the, no matter how much people said, no, no, it's just about you know, refocusing, reorienting to the present moment, to the breath, you know, whatever the anchor is. I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. The goal is to eventually just be able to do this for longer periods of time, you know? And it was funny because it's like, I feel like I'm a smart person, but I just kept not buying into that as a real thing. And then, you know, the more I've kind of exposed to it, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're actually telling the truth. Like they're actually telling the truth about this being a practice and that every time we reorient, we strengthen our capacity and that that, you know, carries over into our, into our day-to-day interactions. And so I really see it as very similar, you know, but we have to be really, really careful that when we reorient to a place of being love, that it doesn't get mixed up with what our beliefs are about what it's like to be in this state of being love, because being in a state of being love doesn't mean that you um, don't have boundaries or expectations, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't say no. And it doesn't mean that you always say yes. And that you're like, Oh, I, you know, I'm fully understanding of this person in all ways. It's like, no, you can be fully accepting of where that person's at and still not want to be around them and still know that that's not good for you. So it's really important to kind of think about it in a, in a, in a more fulsome way. you like, being loved doesn't mean sacrificing oneself in any way, shape or form, you know, integrity and love are extremely connected. Um, so yeah, it's like, I, I just want to make sure the audience is like really clear that it's not like just rose colored glasses, seeing the other as perfectly imperfect. Well, if you're truly embodying, right? Like if you're in that love, right? Like if you're sort of in that, then I don't, I think it has to include yourself. 
if you're right. re- really sitting there. It has to include yourself. And if it does include yourself, then you can't violate yourself any more than you could violate someone else. Mm-hmm. So it sort of necessitates and sort of creates boundaries if it's, you know, if, if that's where you're coming from, because if you're including yourself, you know, like you owe yourself that respect and that, um, and that care. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I was in Peru last year at an, at an ayahuasca center and, um, a very powerful ceremony. And I was talking to life and life was telling me, you know, you need, you need to love and trust in this order, higher consciousness. Um, and then you, and it's really important that it's in that order. And I really had this like really profound experience of seeing like why that is, you know, such an important, um, guiding light. And, you know, I do believe in a higher consciousness, you know, and so that concept is, is uh, comfortable for me, though I did not for many, many years. I didn't until I started uh, working with psychedelics, to be honest, I did not believe in God. Um, but now I do, I believe in a, in a higher power or consciousness that is benevolent. Um, and so it's like, okay, I trust life first and foremost, and I love life first and foremost, and then myself, and then everything else comes after that. But that's really, really, really hard. We sacrifice ourselves every day. You know, we enact violence against ourselves routinely. And I mean, the word violence is a strong word, but if you think about it, like if you do something when you don't feel comfortable doing it, it's, it's, it, those are small, maybe not so small acts of aggression against the self. Like, to be honest, even if I, if I were totally loving of myself, 100% loving of myself, I would have rescheduled this, this interview. I slept very poorly last night. I woke up super tired. You know, my body was saying, please, no, don't do this. And I was like, well, we have to. And so I remember one of my girlfriends saying to me, she's like, you know, you'll have, you'll have reached that pinnacle when you have a talk scheduled and hundreds of people are scheduled to show up and you call in tired, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I would never do that. (laughs) I would never do that. But, you know, we, we do this all the time to, to ourselves, you know, and to each other. But also I'm very glad that I made it today. So it's not, it's not a black or white situation. There's lots of gray. (laughs) I I appreciate your very, very very small act of of (laughs) self-aggression. So where my mind leapt with that is, um, you know, because kind of thinking of a little bit of, you know, self-aggression, you know, and then I think of, um, I think of addiction. um, And I think of, um, you know, I, I think of what we spoke about at the beginning of an eating disorder in which you're not nourishing yourself with food, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and sort of it made me kind of curious to sort of segue into asking you about that and to your work yeah. with eating disorders and specifically how uh, eating disorders and psychedelics fit. Um, I really want to make sure we, we touch on that because I'm very, very curious uh, as to yeah, your thoughts. For sure. I mean, I think that psychedelics can be hugely beneficial for people who are struggling with eating disorders for two reasons, two main reasons. One is they optimize, they optimize brain states in order to enhance the efficacy 
of eating disorder treatments uh, and not just brain states, but relational states that make it so that treatments are, are being um, received in a way that is likely to be more effective. Um, and then the other is that psychedelics can lead to the healing of psychological or relational processes on their own. And so, um, so for example, ketamine, like I, I conducted the study last year where we gave people with an eating disorder, moderate to high dose of ketamine, they had, you know, powerful experiences. And then within 24 hours, we, um, we met with them to engage in, you know, experiential psychotherapy, like very powerful experiential psychotherapy. And so it was a perfect example of like leveraging both those things. The ketamine itself leads to these neuro um, positive effects and then including brain plasticity for a period of time. And so then we, then we hit them with really uh, experiential, really intensive psychotherapy within that period of neuroplasticity, which meant that they're better able to um, they're, they're, able to benefit from that psychotherapy. You know, psychotherapy works. I'm a huge proponent of psychotherapy. It's just that some people have more stuck brain processes. And so it's harder for the psychotherapy to have its effect. And so when combined with these psychedelics, I mean, there's really cool things that can happen. In particular, when we were talking about eating disorders, like the features that I feel are the most salient with respect to the the promise or the potential of psychedelics or psychotherapy is that, you know, and I'm, I'm leading this, this study on MDMA for eating disorders with maps and, and um, like something like MDMA, for example, can allow a person to um, develop more trust with the person in the room, the psychotherapist, and not just with the person in the room, but with themselves. And so people with eating disorders typically are very afraid of their inner world. They can even develop phobias related to physiological sensations, you know, of which emotions are included. And so when, when you, when you are in a state and you have MDMA on board and you're like, okay, I, oh my gosh, I really trust this person. And then that really helps to trust the self it means that you then can go inside and start to kind of not just explore, but engage with the parts of the self that um, are held hostage by that eating disorder part or that are fueling that those eating disorder urge symptoms, you know, urges or thoughts, you know? So, so that's really, really amazing where, where people can like really increase their capacity to trust themselves and others to then go inside and do this deep work um, informed by decades of beautiful psychotherapy research, you know, to kind of, and come to this place of, of feeling more resolved, of feeling more integrated, of feeling more whole, uh, feeling more well. The other piece is that people who have eating disorders tend to have extremely harsh critics, inner critics. And because psychedelics can engender these experiences of self-love of self-compassion like nothing else i have seen it can be an extremely powerful antidote to this otherwise extremely harsh inner critic that's making you feel fat all day and pushing you to 
hurt yourself by not eating or over exercising or binging, you know, or purging. Um, self love is oh, self love mm-hmm. is too. If I if I can just interject, too. self love in the context of therapy, like just sitting. Boy, that's that's that takes a long time. That's very hard. In my experience yes. as a therapist, like, whew, yes. I mean, I mean, because you I, you can put your finger on it with a client and see it, and that person can also understand what you're saying and be like, yeah, I get it. But changing that, yeah, is so hard and takes so long in traditional psychotherapy. So that's one of the kind of major features of psychedelic psychotherapy that um, lends itself to the healing of eating disorders is that psychedelics allow for the embodiment of these experiences. And so, you know, I worked, I interviewed a, a woman who participated in an ayahuasca ceremony. And she said, you know, after years of being in therapy and speaking the mantras, Mm -hmm. I am worth it. I am, you know, I am lovable. She's like, she had this experience where she felt that she was worth it. And she felt that she was lovable in every cell of her body. And that kind of somatic experience is, um, is, is an imprint. It's an imprint into your Mm -hmm. psyche, into your soul, into your body, you know, which means that it can never be taken away and you can always remember it. Yeah. And it's not to say that she had she was criticizing the people who encouraged her to do the mantras. No, it was like it was like um, a life saver, like a life preserver. Like send me, throw me the raft. You know, I am worthy. I am lovable. I am worthy. I am lovable. Like mm-hmm. like really gritty, kind of bare knuckling it through this really painful experience of myself as not worthy and not lovable. But then these psychedelics really kind of allows people in the right set and setting to have a full body, you know, cellular imprinted experience. And when you have that, you are fundamentally different. You Brian, do not hurt yourself in the same way. Yes. Brian and I are both uh, act therapist acceptance and commitment therapy, oh, which is oh. an experiential psychotherapy. Like, and you know, you're describing mantras and, 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 you know, we talk about thinking about the problem or talking about the problem or identifying it. And I've never actually seen somebody really, make a shift in that it's been an interesting way to tie this whole conversation together in a way the times i've seen people have a a a shift in that sense of inner critic or self like a harsh one is there's been love in the room it's been there right like it's really palpably been there and like it does it's not talking about it it's not talking about self-love but it's like been there in the exchange i've had and it's extremely moving as a therapist it's extremely powerful And, um, but it's hard to get to that. Like, it's hard to get to that. Um, and so having sort of a way of doing that, um, uh, fairly reliably, it just, it's, 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 it's just so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I I interviewed this other woman about the, the, the power of love in her healing from an eating disorder. And she had experienced psychedelic psychotherapy. She'd done ayahuasca, but she'd also done uh, a high dose LSD you know, with, with, with a therapist and what she described, like changed everything for me. <laughs> she said, when I felt, when I saw in their eyes, when I felt from my therapist that they actually loved me, when I heard my therapist say that they actually loved me, she didn't say it exactly in this way, but this is, I'm paraphrasing. She's like, it was metabolized into worthiness. 
my experience of their love was metabolized into worthiness because it's like, she's like, what must it mean about me? And so I really don't think that everyone needs to have a psychedelic psychotherapy experience to have that embodied experience of love. We can do it by, um, via the psychotherapeutic relationship, you know, and, and it's not going to be as powerful, but not everyone needs that, you know, but if you can feel that your therapist loves you through the way they look at you, through the way they speak to you, you know, I actually believe that it can be chemically transformed, metabolized into feelings of worthiness. And so when I talk about love as a healing technology, I really, really mean it. I, in my lifetime, I'm not going to be the one who demonstrates at the chemical level, like how this happens, you know, that's just not going to be how I spend the rest of my career, but I really hope someone else does. Many other people do because I am absolutely, I want to fucking convinced (laughs) that when we experience love, it is chemically metabolized or transformed, you know, within our system into feelings of worthiness. And when we feel worthy, then organically we engage with ourselves, others, the world in a way that is more health focused and not just good for us, but good for everyone. And so if we really want to go all the way full circle, you were talking about how psychedelics have the potential to heal people and systems, but maybe even culture at large. This is, I think this is where we start as we start by healing the separation within ourselves. And that I believe will end will lead to healing separations that we experience with others. I did want to ask you about your thoughts regarding what therapists need to do uh, to mm-hmm. prepare for this work. Um, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about how you might describe the importance of of the work when whatever form that is psychedelics, if you're doing psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, having your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, you know, the, the, just the broader question is how, how do we train therapists? Yeah. Are we, are we doing a good job in the way graduate programs are structured and what's missing? So mm-hmm. yeah, if you could just speak to that, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, I think we're doing a good job because we're doing our best, you know, everyone's doing their best. And also, if we're thinking about how do we want to evolve, you know, learning from um, what's coming up now in science and practice, I think there are a few things that we can do, you know, like, but they're, they're like, they're, oh, it's complicated. And here I start to feel a little bit like hopeless about the, what change needs to happen. Like, so I just want to, for example, when I supervise or train clinicians, you know, and, and incorporate some of these concepts, sometimes there's a little bit resistance. Like, ah, if I engage in that way with everybody, I'm going to burn out, you know? And so I see it that we're looking at the problem perhaps in the wrong way. Like I need to, I need to manage my resources so that I burn out and do more, or I need to do less. You know, when I hear about um, people who, have like seven clients in a day. Like, I just don't understand. I don't understand how that works because our bodies need our attention, you know, for, for more time than what is possible seeing seven clients in a day. And if one is feeling like 
being present, being really fully present is too much, then rather than being less present, you know, being more disconnected or kind of being more rote, then I think that we have to do less. And that is a hard sell in our world because of the cultural pressures, but also because of the practical pressures related to the cultural pressures. So, you know, I feel like I'm at my best when I do less. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have to reckon with a whole other bunch of problems, you know, my scarcity fears. Am I going to have enough money, you know, to pay my mortgage, to, you know, do the things that I want to do that enrich my life in other ways. So that's one of the things is like really, really being so um, focused on, on caring for oneself, you know, and, and if we love ourselves, it's not really a deliberate act, you know, and people talk about self care with psychotherapists and I do too, honestly, but it's really, it's the wrong conversation because if you inherently love yourself, you don't need to actively be trying to prevent burnout. You automatically listen to your signals. You're like, oh, I'm tired. I need a mental health day. Or I'm hungry. I need to take a break. You know, so I think the first thing I would say is to really kind of train people to reconnect to their body signals, all of them, and to practice listening to them, heeding the needs in a consistent manner, I think they're going to show up differently that way. The other thing is that engaging in their own personal work. I'm a very strong, firm, black and white believer (laughs) that if we are going to be helping people with their deepest wounds, that we need to give attention to our deepest wounds on a regular basis. Now, do I think that everyone needs to do psychedelics in order to be psychedelic psychotherapists? I don't especially now for the most part psychedelics are illegal and for the most part they're being researched for treatment resistant conditions you know so if a clinician were to engage in psychedelic psychotherapy they'd be doing it illegally and most likely for a condition that is not yet um, established in terms of um, safety feasibility you know an outcome I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to, su- to support use for, for not just healing, but growth, you know. But at this time, I would, I would be very hesitant to say to somebody, in order to do this, you need to do something illegal um, and for reasons that are not currently indicated. I do believe, though, that if people engage in deep experiential psychotherapy or they have experience with altered states of context, or con, uh, altered states of consciousness. That that is important, you know. But I just the other thing, like with ayahuasca in particular, which is where I started. You know, like now I do research with psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine. But you know, ayahuasca. I mean, ayahuasca is no joke. Like I just just finished a study where I, I, I published data from interviews from fourteen different ceremonial leaders, shamans. You know asking them about optimal preparation practices. And everybody said, you really have to be going for the right reasons. You have to be clear that you're doing it for your own personal like healing. If you're doing it because that's part of your job requirements, then that's a big problem because ayahuasca can really shake up your life in a, in, in, 
so you have to really be kind of wanting the shakeup. You know, it's not true for everybody, but it can happen. In fact, someone once said to me, this idea of like preparing people for psychedelic experiences, we have one of the ways to prepare people for psychedelic experiences to let them know that you can't ever fully prepare mm-hmm. for some psychedelic experiences, that they can change your life so fundamentally and, and so disruptively, you know, and, and we can't predict who's going to have that experience. Like recently I was speaking to a colleague of mine who's <clears throat> in a very, you know, important leadership position in a healthcare center and they engaged it with psychedelics and they're like, shit, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Now I go back to work and I can't do this like this anymore. And I don't know how to change it. I'm going to figure it out, but it's going to be a long, arduous process. So all that to say, I think people need to do their own work uh-huh. and they need to do deep experiential work. Um, <clears throat> I don't necessarily think that at this time it needs to be psychedelics. Uh-huh. So that you know, and you talked about um, that person you kind of had that experience of of kind of being, oh wow, how do I live this life I was living before? Yeah. You know, afterwards, and you know, it it brings me back to something you know you said earlier when you think about that. Okay, so you know, you have self love, um, and you mm-hmm. recognize your needs, and but then there are all these social pressures, a or just basically structural challenges in your life like mm-hmm. you said you have to pay the mortgage you have to do this i have this job you have and there's this um tension between those two things and there mm-hmm. always is and i think you know psychedelics can some like really really highlight that tension you can you can really see like wow i can't actually live the life that i'm living now in the way i'm mm-hmm. living it and also you know honor myself like these things are not compatible anymore That's but that right. doesn't present a solution necessarily mm-hmm. you know and so then you get into a really tricky um uh, problem where you're trying, like you're you're needing to restructure or shape your life to honor yourself, but it doesn't fit exactly. So in some ways, it's where the work just starts. Um, and in some ways, it really also I think highlights the need for, um, you know, the limits of psychotherapy and the need for also a focus on social change. And I think that has mm-hmm. to be a focus for people who uh, value psychedelic work personally. That's <laughs> I really think that has to be a focus because if we don't have uh, contexts that are good for human flourishing, right, then mm-hmm. no amount of therapy and no amount of self-love is going to help somebody fit mm-hmm. when their life doesn't give them that space. You know, yeah. So I think we, ha- we have to also bring that, that into start? discussion. How does social change start? It starts exactly. with visual yes. standing yes. up, you know? It does. Yes. Yes, exactly. So I feel but like – yeah, there's there's uh, overlap there. There's there's plenty of overlap, but it, it I think it, it it has to be a part of the discussion too that you know we have to take this energy uh, and also focus not just on mm-hmm. our um, you know the needs of our clients or our own selves, but like how we structure ourselves as a society so that yeah yeah people can flourish. Yeah, except for when you say that we have to do this, you know, um, we have to do this. There's a pressure. Who has to do it? You know, I don't know. Not me. If I'm really just being totally honest, I'm exhausted, you know? And I feel like the way that I can help, you know, evolve the consciousness in, in our world is to focus my efforts in, in loving myself, taking care of myself, you know, but other people, other people might feel really empowered by, uh, advocate advocating for the social change i mean in a way what we're doing right now is advocacy for social change yes um 
but I think we have to be careful that we kind of don't put pressure on ourselves that will then lead to these aggressive acts. I, you know, there's this, cool, there's this poem that I love. Um, Nayira Wahid uh, is the author of the poem. I want to meet this person. And the poem is very simple. It's eight lines. I love myself. The quietest, simplest, most powerful revolution ever. And I think that um, that would be a great act of advocacy if we if we embodied, you know, that way of being. It doesn't mean though that there aren't there isn't um, a need for people to be advocating on the front lines, you know, to be pushing for change. But I think that um, I have certainly during COVID, you know, I, I, someone someone criticized me for not using my platform more in order to uh to push for social change and i remember thinking and i remember getting the email and i was really devastated by it because i was like oh my god i am so in support of this cause and also i am so tired you know and i just can't do it all and i feel like already i do so much you know for me you know and, and to the point where i feel stretched and I have to say no to so many things, and I feel guilty about that. But I, it was—it really, really hit me when I got that when I got that message. And so, you know, and I think that was a part of me that was triggered when you're like, "We have to, we have to." I'm like, "Oh shit, please don't make me do this part because I'm tired, and I feel like I can contribute in other ways, you know, and that we each find our way." We each find our cause. We each find what works best for us in a way that's super consistent with self-love. And I know that that's not what you meant. You know, I know it's like your call, a call for awakening. You know, but I just, in case anyone else is feeling that way, I just want to like put words to it. There's, there are so many ways to be a part of this revolution, and one of the ways that we can is to really genuinely be soft and gentle and loving with ourselves. And then eventually we'll be able to do that with others. And I think Lior Rose, Roseman from Imperial did this amazing research where he and his colleagues interviewed people who had drank ayahuasca together, but who were, who were culturally at war, two cultural groups, two religious and cultural groups. And if I understood correctly, what he was trying to convey was that these people were drinking ayahuasca together and there was like century old conflict between them. And what he found was that by people doing their own work, healing the conflict within themselves, that there was less conflict organically, you know, across in the space between. And so I think that everything is important. I think that we need to be advocating strongly, you know, for social change and we and we also need to be working on healing the divides within ourselves because sometimes um advocacy can be aggressive can be violent you know and there's controversy around that but what's needed you know to affect social change and i've certainly kind of been um what's the word i felt resistance to participating in some social change movements because i felt like there was, it was not just motivated by passion, but also by hatred. Yeah. 
you know, I appreciate, appreciate you giving voice to that. That that tension that you're describing lives um, very painfully in inside of me. Um, so I, I can very much relate, you know, to to what you're saying and, and sort of like a feeling sometimes of obligation versus like, hey, this is what I can do. And also, so much social action that you see, um, I, I think, contains that aggression or just isn't effective. It's just not effective. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of what we see that's passing for activism right now is like. How is that going to change anybody's mind? How is that going to change anybody's heart? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, um, and I guess that's why I brought it up too, was just to be able to talk about it. I don't think that there's a right way. And I don't think there's an obligation yeah. to like do this um, the way someone else thinks that that, that you should. Um, it's just more of an observation that, you know, as we transform ourselves, there are also contexts that need transforming yeah, outside of totally. ourselves. Yeah. It's an acknowledgement of that, not necessarily an admonition that, I guess I said it that way. It's what you, no, you, listen, you, you, you triggered something inside of me. You did not create it. It was inside of me. So I yes. take full responsibility for it. You know, well, and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy you owned it because it, it was, it helped us illuminate that. I think that yeah. tension is like, I, like, you, like I said, it was, it's in me too. And, yeah. and probably in some of our listeners and, and because it's hard, you know, when you're helping people change, it's a very heartbreaking thing. And then you see them go into situations. You're like, well, this isn't going to take very well. Um, right. And, and like that, yeah. that's a painful experience as a therapist and it happens, you know, in our, in our culture all mm. over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm really inspired by the me too movement, by the black lives matters movements, because, you know, one of the things that I observed happening was enough people standing up and saying, no, like firmly and clearly expressing boundaries, you know, in words and action and the critical mass of people firmly and clearly expressing actions in words and action, you know, made it so that change happened. Like, so like uh, it was one of the most amazing things, you know, to be a part of, honestly, just like, wow. So many people stood up and said, enough, enough. We are not going to allow this anymore. And it led to like the most rapid growth socially that I've observed anyways, maybe it's just more public, you know? And so it's like, okay, there's, we learned something here. Speaking our boundaries together you know, in a way that's united makes it so that changes, we, we, we create change. And also we have to make sure that we're doing it from a place of, of uh, connectedness, but still really, really clear um, in words and action. And that's, you know, it's tough. It's tough. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation, Adele. And I have to say, you know, my own process this morning, you know, I, I, I tend to come into these episodes with a lot of headspace. Uh, you know, I have to ask these questions and I hope, you know, and my own process of, of this conversation has been to really um, dip into a heart space. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I hope that comes through for our audience as well. But I really want to express my gratitude for really embodying what you talk about because I felt it. Mm-hmm. And I feel that love and I feel that connection. And, uh, you know, f- when you talked about loving yourself, you know, it's something I say to clients every day. It's something I try to live, but there was a sort of a new experience of it in the way you talked about it that really touched me. 
And I just want to um, express my gratitude uh, for, uh, on behalf of myself and our audience for being willing to come today and share your work. Thanks, Brian. That's really sweet. I really appreciate that. And it's funny, as you say that, what happens inside of me is like, oh shit, but there were so many instances where I was bordering on the critical or the, you know, too much or too this. And so it's like, oh man, I've got more work to do. <laughs> and also, you know, I think uh, I, just, I also really appreciate what you said because it is something that's super important to me and that I'm passionate about. And then I really hope that I can make a difference, you know? Well, um, yeah, I, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think it's gone in a really great direction. It's been a little different than some of our previous interviews. And so I think it's been, I really appreciate your time. I've had a, a great time and thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Nate. And a kumbaya, motherfuckers. <laughs> 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 oh my god that is so fucking funny <laughs> oh my god I, hope, I really want you to keep that in alright <laughs> alright well, thanks, thanks so much I'll we'll let you go now here. <laughs>